Monday night, my daughter Hannah, uh, we found this out later, went to get some donuts, bought a box of donuts, brought them home for her family. They were all looking forward to having them the next morning. But when they got up to enjoy them Tuesday morning, they discovered that my four-year-old grandson, Ethan, had taken a single bite out of every single donut. <laughs> now, I remember that with the seized candy box poking the bottoms to see what was inside, you know, but to bite every, he bit everyone, and on top of that, he's got a snotty head cold. So, so the whole thing was just kind of a, a loss. I, I just thought that was so funny. That's just, for one thing, so Ethan. But listen, if you're gonna study the Bible, don't take little bites. Don't just take a bite out of each book and think that that's good enough and move on. Don't sample the scripture. Enjoy the whole counsel of the word of God. See, even Ethan eating donuts, you can make into a point. With Israel's rite of passage tonight, we're gonna come to the end of it. And we will finish Joshua tonight and then we're gonna come back to it. It's one more thing we really need to spend some time on Sunday morning. Uh, out of this book before we finally close it and move on to Judges, which, by the way, is going to be a roller coaster ride. If you've never studied Judges, it is perhaps the most bizarre book in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, certainly up there in, in the top one or two. So we'll be coming to Judges uh, a week from Sunday, next Wednesday night, worship night. So we're just gonna come together and worship and give thanks, and night before Thanksgiving, it's always a, it's been kind of a tradition here at the bridge, and so we're gonna do that. Israel is in their rite of passage. And with this, we have had a taste of each of the 13 tribes, a baker's dozen, if you will, of the tribes of Israel. We have dug into their divine fulfillment. And as we talked about Sunday, all came to pass. All came to pass. What a marvelous phrase to be able to look back and say, yeah, yeah, God fulfilled every one of his promises to us thus far. And knowing that, knowing all came to pass, we can know and believe that all must come to pass. If he did it, he's going to do it. Now, Joshua chapter 23 brings us to a very, very poignant, I believe, ending to this, to this study because Joshua is gonna die. And Joshua knows he's gonna die. As a matter of fact, every word he speaks in chapter 23 and 24 is on the day of his death. And he knows. He knows this is his last day. What would you do with your last day? You wake up in the morning and the Lord says to you, Cheryl, this is it. You have today. When your head hits the pillow tonight, you will wake up with me. That's wonderful, what would you do with the day? How would you spend the last day? Well, we get to find out exactly how Joshua spent his final day. It came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side and Joshua was old, advanced in years. The Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers. And he said to them, I am old, advanced in years. Don't worry, I won't talk like that the whole night. I am old, advanced in years. So at this point in the book of Joshua, over the last three months, we've covered 30 years. It's been a 30-year journey with Israel coming into the land and all that's taken place across 30 years. General Joshua was roughly 85 years old 
when they crossed into the promised land, when he took up the mantle of a leader of the people, when God told him, Joshua chapter one, verse six, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. I don't know about you, but I always pictured Joshua as a young man kind of trembling in his sandals. God says, be strong and courageous. Okay, this is a little overwhelming, Lord, but I'm gonna give it my best. No, this is an old guy. He's 85 years old. The only reason he's trembling is because he's 85. And God tells him, be strong and courageous. And we have seen the courage. And we have seen the strength of the Lord in Joshua. After the seven-year conquest, Joshua, at the age of 92, takes up the new job, which we talked about. He's now, he became a real estate agent. And for the next 13 years begins a process of divvying up the land. Chapters 13 through 19, we did that in two weeks. It took 13 years years to get it all divided out for the casting of the lots, for the people to actually to come and even want their inheritance and Joshua to give it to them and off they go. Another decade has now gone by since that and Joshua's 110. I think all that math adds up. But I wanna ask a question tonight. Joshua's 110 here at the end of the book. Who wants to live to 111 if you had asked me that in my 20s, I would have gone, oh, I'll, I'll take it. If you asked me that at this point in my life, I'm like, uh-uh. Don't give me another year. If I live to 110, it's way too long. Joshua is 110 years old. We come to the end of this Joshua's story. We come to a changing of the guard. And what's gonna happen in chapters 23 and 24 is he's gonna give two farewell addresses broken up by the two chapters, two farewell addresses. The first farewell address in chapter 23 is what I'm gonna call in part one, primary responsibilities. Primary responsibilities, that's chapter 23, part one. Part two, the second farewell address in chapter 24 is prophetic reflections. Prophetic reflections, primary responsibilities first, then prophetic reflections, and then all of this will end up with Three poignant requiems. Okay, so primary responsibilities, part one. Prophetic reflections, part two. And poignant requiems, part three. Part one, primary responsibility. Notice this, that in verse two, Joshua is not addressing the people in mass. Who's he talking to? Their elders, their heads, their judges, their officers. In other words, this is directed specifically at the leaders of Israel. Keep that in mind because now the primary responsibility that Joshua was shouldering, carrying for all this time, the primary responsibility is theirs. The onus is on the leaders. And Joshua says in verse three, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. Why does Joshua have to say that? Because it wasn't about his leadership and it won't be about their leadership. All of God's generals and elders and heads and judges and officers grow old. All of them die off. All of them always have. All of them always will. But his work carries on doesn't make you and me insignificant. It makes us incredibly significant for our moment in time. But guess what? When you're gone, the word will go on. Unless we're all gone together 
And even then, following the rapture of the church, his work's gonna continue without us and he's gonna do quite well. Thank you very much. But his work continues on even when we're gone. Isaiah 40, verse six, a voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so verse three, encapsulating the entire 30-year period, Joshua says very clearly, the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. Our success, our victorious living is because God does the fighting. And as we've seen, it's been a stunning seven-year route of seven nations, including taking down seemingly insurmountable fortress cities like Jericho, taking out multiple alliances of kings, not just one king at a time, but oftentimes as we've seen, the kings would make alliances together and come in mass against Israel and, and God fought for them. They taking in a day when the, when the sun stood still in the heavens so they have more time to fight. You know what's interesting about that day back in Joshua chapter 10? The day that the sun stood still high in the sky over the valley of Aijalon and at the same time, what did God do? He threw hailstones on the heads of the enemy. Had you ever thought about the fact that not only is it supernatural that God's chucking hailstones at the enemies, but he's doing it on the same time when the sun is high in the sky. This is a miracle, folks. This is supernatural. When was the last time it was a clear blue sky in Oak Harbor and it was hailing? much less hail the size of basketballs to take out armies. Well, God did that, even to the point of Israel taking on Canaanite chariots and cavalries, iron chariots of the enemies, and Israel did it all on foot because God was fighting for them. I'm sitting on this verse because we have this tendency for all these supernatural that God does and has done and I believe continues to do in our lives in this world. We have a way of rationalizing the power of God right out the door. Oh, it was just the circumstances. Or that just happened to happen the way it did or, or mother nature did it. There is no mother nature. There is only father God. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, the prophet said, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jesus said, Mark chapter nine, verse 23, all things are possible to him who believes. You know, Jesus said that three times. All things are possible. He said it right here to a, a frantic father whose son is demonically possessed and, and seizing epileptically. He, he says, all things are possible to him who believes. Remember the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus said, what do you mean if? All things are possible. And then in Matthew chapter 19, also in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, all things are possible when they ask him, if a rich man can't go to heaven, who can? He says, all things are possible. Finally, in Mark 14, 36, Jesus was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What's remarkable to me about that is faith 
recognizes the power of God even when it's held in restraint. Even when God is not doing what I've asked him to do. Even when he's holding back the supernatural power that I know that he has. Power that he could do what I need to have done right now, Lord, and he doesn't do it. Hey, I trust him even in his restraint that all things are possible. Lord Jesus, enable us to, to trust beyond possibilities, to trust for every victory, no matter how it comes, even if it looks like it's coming through a season of defeat. All things are possible. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, Ephesians 3.20. So don't tell me God doesn't work supernaturally just because you haven't seen it lately. All things are possible, even when he doesn't do it. Verse four, Joshua says, see, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan, even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun, the Lord your God. He will thrust them out from before you and drive them out from before you and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you, verses four and five seem to be in conflict because on the one hand, I have done this, and on the other hand, he's going to do this. So we recognize that though they are victorious in the land, that they are settled in their places of inheritance, that though, as I've said, Israel is now the dominant nation in the land, it is no longer Canaan's land, it is Israel, they still have fights to fight. We come to that great place of victory in Jesus. When we give our lives to the Lord, we have our inheritance. We are secure in our salvation. We belong to Jesus, but the fight goes on. We continue to fight, and he continues to go out ahead of us. By the way, note this interesting word here, verse four. See, I have apportioned to you these nations. The word apportioned in the Hebrew is hippalti, and it means to fail, fall down, or collapse. I've collapsed these nations, is what he's saying. I have caused these nations. And by the way, when Joshua says I, he's not being arrogant here. He's speaking through the reality that it's the Lord who has been doing the fighting. So when he says I, it's just because in position he was there. And I have collapsed these nations before you. By divine power, collapsing Canaan fell down before Israel to then be driven out by Israel. Think about that in terms of our sin. Our sin collapses before Jesus. Now we gotta drive it out. Worst thing we can do when we feel like Jesus has overcome a certain sin or sins in our lives is think, okay, now I can control this. No, now you drive it out. It's collapsed, its power is gone, it's disarmed, drive it out. Don't let it remain. Now, with all this in mind, the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers have the responsibility to teach the people of Israel certain things. Watch this, verse six. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, Republican or Democrat. Hold to the word. In other words, first thing they need to teach the people is a firm grasp of the word of God. They need a firm grasp of the word. I should read this to you. First thing that happened after our, our recent election, uh, Steve Berenson shot this over to me, and it was something that Amir Sarfati wrote in his uh, um, blog. He said, 
Please stay on the remnant's side. Let's stop the sensationalism clickbait videos and go back to the word. Being in the word is being with the Lord. More than ever before the believers, or or more than ever before, the believers are called to study and know their Bible. Deception is about to increase, and most of it will come from within the Christian world. Be encouraged for your commitment to the word. Joshua's telling the leaders, the people need a firm grasp of the word of God. Without a firm grasp of the word of God, trouble is in their future. A firm grasp. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14, Paul says the exact same thing to Timothy. Now, what, 1,700 years later, he says, remind them of these things, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Firm grasp on the word. That's a firm grasp. Accurately handling the word. And so what Joshua is doing is he's saying, you gotta firmly grasp the hilt of the sword of the word of God. Teach the people to hold on tight to the word. Why? Because Joshua is passing the torch to this group of leaders who then need to pass the torch along to the people. Verse seven, so that you will not associate with these nations these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Secondly, not only do they need a firm grasp of the word of God, they need a fellowship of distinction from the nations. To be distinguished as a people, as a community, as a fellowship from the nations that are still round about. Joshua goes so far as to say, don't associate with them. Well, that sounds kind of rude. I mean, what if you have a Canaanite for a neighbor and the guy picks up your newspaper and brings it up to the door? Do we get newspapers in person anymore? I didn't think so. So the guy, uh, okay, I'll, let me be a little more relevant. So the guy gets your milk bottle and brings that to your door. <laughs> what? What do you do? What, 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 because the reality is, my friends, we have the same distinction as followers of Jesus. I'm gonna say it to you the same way Joshua said it and then I'll explain. Don't associate with the world. Don't associate with the non-believing world. Wait a minute, Rick. How can I not associate and be an evangelist? How can I take the word of God to lost people if I'm not allowed to even associate with them? The word associate in the Hebrew is very simple to remember. It's bow. Bow. And it means to go among. It means to enter into their culture. And it's the same distinction that we have, not to isolate from the world, but to stand apart in the world. As Jesus said in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from evil or from the evil one, and both work. Paul said in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Ask yourself, am I set apart in this world? Or am I a Christian who embraces my culture? This is a tough one because we can be so accustomed to living in our culture that at best, at best, 
we find ourselves tolerating things that would be intolerable to Jesus. Going to movies that Jesus would bow out of going to. Watching things on TV that Jesus just wouldn't enjoy. Having conversations that he would excuse himself from. Engaging in behaviors that Jesus would just quietly dismiss himself from. And yet we as Christians so easily tolerate the intolerable to God. And that's at our best. At our worst, we enjoy those things. We take part in them. So to be a fellowship that is distinguished from the nations, that has a firm grasp of the word of God, number three, we need a faith that is fastened to the Lord. A faith fastened to the Lord. Look at verse eight. Joshua says, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. A faith fastened to the Lord. It's interesting, this word cling is the same exact word that is used in Genesis 2.24. It means to abide with, to stick to. It means to cleave unto or to be joined together. And it's exactly what was said of Adam and Eve at the beginning of their marriage. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife regardless of what Congress decides. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to. Tidbaku is the word. Cling to his wife. And then it goes on to say, and they shall become one flesh. And that one, word one is a favorite word of mine and, and Jake's, achad, because it's a plurality of unity. But the word be joined to, cling to, stick to, and that's what Joshua uses for our faith to the Lord. A faith that clings to God. I remember being a kid a lot of the time and going into a haunted house with my dad in Mission Viejo, California. Around Halloween time, yeah, shame on him for taking me in there and messing me up for the rest of my life. Going in there, and I was terrified. It was one of those, you know, we got the sheets all lined up, and there are people on the other side of the sheets, and they're just grabbing you as you go by, and I was just, <laughs> I was a complete wreck for about seven years after that. But my, my dad took me through, and I remember just clinging to him. I did not let go, you know, and, and when a, a sheet moved out toward me, I grabbed even tighter, and I'm like, ah, you know, get me out of here. That's what we're talking about, folks. Do we cling to the Lord like that? Well, I don't want to look like a sissy. Cling to the Lord. We need a faith that is fastened to God in the same way Adam and Eve were fastened, joined together as one flesh. Joshua says, for the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. Why? Because you cling to the Lord. He's the fighter. You get out from under his shadow, you're in trouble. Hang on tight. Fasten yourselves by faith to the Lord. He says in verse 10, one of your men puts to flight a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you he would do. And there are so many stories across the history of Israel of this exact thing happening. Wonderful stories I've told you before about, you know, the Syrian army coming up over the hill on the Golan Heights looking down and on the other side of the hill there were two Israelis and the entire battalion of tanks ready to come down the Golan and take Israel and cut it in half, and had they just rolled down the hill, they would have succeeded in the Six-Day War 
of cutting off Israel and perhaps winning that war. But for whatever reason, there was a fright among the leaders of the Syrians. They said, there's no way there are no Jews down there. We gotta turn back, and they turned back. And there were two Israeli soldiers down on the other side of the hill. God does this and has continued to do this. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. I mean, this is literal history and Joshua is recalling it even from their time of fighting against the nations. He fights for you just as he promised you. So, so always remember this. There is nothing weak or pathetic about a faith fastened to the Lord about someone who has a firm grasp on the word of God, someone who determines to be a fellowship that is distinguished from the world, unique and different. More than ever, the church needs to be different and seen as such. Oh, that, that could bring on more persecution. Absolutely. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But that's the call on our lives is to live godly in Christ Jesus. Because our impressive strength, might, valor, and power really are not ours at all. They're the Lord. And anything amazing, anything big, anything successful or victorious that we do for the kingdom in this life at this time, it's him. We're just invited to watch it take place. Well, continuing here, uh, verse 11, after we see this firm grasp of the word, fellowship of distinction from the nations, a faith fastened to the Lord because Zechariah 4, 6, it's not, by, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So all these things are important. These three things that Joshua is now passing along and he's telling the leaders, you need to teach these things. They need to embrace these things. But there's one more responsibility for the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers, and I would add for anyone, any of us that want to live a successful, victorious, triumphant Christian life, verse 11, so take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Number four, we need a faithful love of God. Joshua is telling the leaders, teach them to love the Lord their God. He's just repeating what they know. And by the way, that is the primary responsibility. It's not all of these things together. The primary responsibility that a father teaches a son, a mother teaches a daughter, that, that a Bible school teacher teaches his students, that a small group shares together, the primary responsibility, the goal of our instruction, the Bible says, is love. And A number one, it is the love of God. Our primary responsibility, it doesn't just surpass the others. A love of God is the basis of all the others. If I don't have a love of God, why would I want a firm grasp on his word or a fellowship of distinction from the nations or a faith fastened to the Lord? It's because of a faithful love of God that all the rest of it works. Without this, none of it matters. In this stirring challenge, Joshua, old Joshua, day of his death, remember that, keep that in mind. He says, take diligent heed to love God. Which is interesting language because Joshua describes love as the resolve of the will, not the romance of feelings. Take diligent heed to love the Lord, your God. Choose to do so. Decide you're going to do so. Love is a choice. It is a decision. 
which is why all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, with all that you are, choose to love God. Now, this is really important because understanding this is not only the primary responsibility that all of us have to teach to others, it's our primary responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. A faithful love of God. Choosing to love God, this is the most vital, fundamental, basic decision that we can make at first following, that is when we first give our lives to Jesus, we do so because we realize what he's done and we love him. So we have an, it, that, becoming a believer in Jesus, that's an act of love. You've taken a first step of loving God. But from that point, I would say to every single day thereafter, we need to choose to love God. I don't know if you've thought about it that way, but do you wake up in the morning and choose, decide, this day, I'm gonna love God? You might say, well, no, I, I love God. I just love God. I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm talking about you making a decided choice every single day to love God because here's what it looks like. I, I can choose to get high. I can choose to get drunk. I can choose to do drugs. Or I can choose to love God. I can choose adultery, I can choose pornography, I can choose any kind of or all manner of sexual sin, or I can choose to love God. I can choose to lie, cheat, steal, even murder, or I can choose to love God. I can go out of my house in the morning and choose to walk in the ways of this world and in its means, or I can choose to love God. I can choose myself, my wants, my desires, or I can choose to love God. See what it does? You see the difference? This is a decided, determined choice that we make to put love of God over and above anything else in our lives. Today, I choose to love God, which means by choosing to love God, I'm choosing not to do any of the other things that my flesh, my carnal man, even my soul might be drawn to or lured to. No, I'm choosing to love God today. And because I choose to love him, I'm not doing these other things. Love of God, it denies the lust of all the rest. I choose to love him. And by the way, the more we choose to love God on an active daily basis, the more our hearts are softened and enrich that soil of the heart for him to produce the fruit of the spirit, which begins with love, as you know, and then it's joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and even self-control. This all comes because I choose to love God. It softens my heart, and his spirit goes to work, which is why Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. He says, this is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I can choose to love God, and all the rest falls into place. Or I can choose any of these other things. And the choice is up to each one of us. What if a person decides not to love God? I choose today, and maybe you would never say it out loud, but you just don't choose to love him today. Because you got something you want to do today that you know does not align with him. You know you can't love him and do that. So I'm just, I'm just going to kind of 
pretend, I'm just not gonna think about it. What happens? Verse 12, if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate, that is go among them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you. What does that mean? Defeat. If you choose not to love God, you will know defeat. They will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip to your sides and thorns in your eyes. Distress. Defeat and distress until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Disgrace. I can choose to love God and get the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all that comes with it, that fruitful, wonderful, victorious Christian life because I choose to love God and he works all this into me. Or I can choose not to love God, defeat, distress, and disgrace will come, will flow, will follow. Joshua is, is, is not mincing his words with the people here. And sadly, what he describes there in verse 13 is exactly where Israel was stubbornly headed. We'll get that in the next book. Verse 14, now behold, today, I am going the way of all the earth. He is so matter of fact. I mean, you've probably seen it in the movies, read it in, in media articles, or, or maybe you've even experienced it, people who are terrified because they know their death is imminent. And Joshua is matter of fact. Today, I go the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in your souls that not one word of the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Or as he said back in chapter 21, verse 45, all came to pass. What is on Joshua's mind the day that he is going the way of all the earth, the day of his dying, is wow, God did everything he said he was gonna do. It's fulfillment. This faith is remarkable. And by the way, it's pretty obvious through this book that Joshua not only believed in the literal word of God, he believed in what we would call the plenary word of God. Plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Good word, the plenary word of God. What does that mean? It means not only did Joshua believe that all scripture is inspired by God, but he believed it down to the last word. I believe that way. When I talk about the inspired word of God, that the Bible is God's word, I believe that he chose the exact words that were spoken in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, in the Greek, some little bit of Latin, and a tad of Babylonian <laughs> in the book of Daniel. He chose the words. He used the words that he wanted, that he desired. That's a belief in the plenary word of God, that it's all inspired. And today, Joshua knows he gonna die. How'd he know? How did Joshua really know today was the day? Well, I think probably because the Lord told him. Now, we don't have a record of that. So we don't know that God told him, but I think that's probably it. But he also knows because that's what the word declares. What, what word? Well, Joshua had Torah, right? So he knew all that Torah spoke. He knew all that Moses had written, Joshua would have spent his lifetime by now as guided by Moses, pouring over the five books of Torah, pouring over the scriptures. He probably also had, I can't prove this, but, but, but there, there's a lot of scholarship that thinks Job 
was actually the oldest book in the Bible. Actually predates the writing of Genesis because Job was contemporary with Abraham. So it's entirely likely that not only did they have Torah, but they also had the book of Job. And the book of Job, Job himself says, chapter 30, verse 23, I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all the living. Everybody dies. Job says, I know, that's where I'm headed. Either in sackcloth and ashes or my own pitiful state right now, or ultimately, I know that's where I'm going. Joshua knows. That's the deal, man. That's the way out, other than the rapture of the church. That's the way we go. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, here's the good news. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin, that is without reference to sin, without having to bear sin, to those who eagerly await him. Death is the deal. The scriptures are very clear about it. Joshua is totally at peace with that because Joshua's life is not limited to 110 years. Neither is yours. Or limited to 58 years, or 85 years, or 72 years, or 43 years. Our lives are not limited to the life we're living now. Our lives are just gonna get started when we step out of this world. We're gonna graduate and get into real business. And that's the promise of the word of God. Verse 15, Joshua continues, it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. My friends, notice he says when, not if. And so the commander turned real estate agent is a prophet. And he is speaking already prophetically. And that is exactly, you know this, it's exactly what will happen to this people. Joshua knew human nature and knew his own people well enough to know that we backslide, we relapse, we regress into selfishness and worldliness and sin. And I think the only way that we don't is by the power of the Holy Spirit and by keeping the primary responsibility to love God. You love God. It's really hard to backslide into sin or to relapse into old ways when you get up and choose to love God. When that is on your mind, loving God must be a chosen, intentional, even determined thing every day. Every day. What if I don't? What if I forget a day? What if I go a month or a year and I forget about intentionally trying to love God? I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but you may lose your way a bit. You may find yourself in defeat or distress or disgrace. But if you choose to love God, as Joshua is calling these leaders, if, if love of God is first and foremost on our minds, then that's a good day. And that is a victory in this Christian life. So I, I don't question the ability of God to save the grace of God, but if you would avoid defeat, distress, and disgrace, Better said, if you really wanna live the victorious, blessed, and honored Christian life, it will only happen as you choose to love God. Part two, 
Part two, we now come to the second address, which we're calling prophetic reflection. Prophetic reflection, chapter 24, verse one. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and their heads and their judges and their officers and they presented themselves before God. So he's got the guys, the leaders back before him again, presenting themselves before the Lord at Shechem. Now now pause for a moment. Why? Why Shechem? Shechem has a very storied history in scripture and in Israel. Shechem, if you fast forward all the way to the days of Jesus, is called Sikar. There's a well there. Jesus would meet the woman at the well there at Sikar, just outside of Shechem. Today, Shechem is very close to, uh, traditional Shechem actually is called Tel Balata. It's a, um, a mound, but they have discovered a Tel in Israel, and they know that, that's ancient Shechem. Nablus is right next to it. So the Palestinian stronghold is right there at Shechem. It rests there on the eastern edge of a pretty steep valley. Going up one side on the north is Mount Ebal. Going up the other side on the left is Mount Gerizim. Remember the mounts of blessing and cursing? Right there, there's the valley. And right at the, at the eastern edge of the valley is Shechem. But if we've been following through with Joshua and we've seen these significant places where they've been so far, why not Gilgal? Why not call the people to Gilgal? That's where they first stood together when they came across into the land. That was like their first camp. Why not Gilgal? Why not Shiloh? The eventual location of the tabernacle. Why Shechem? Very simply because Shechem is the first place in the promised land where God met Abraham. You may recall in Genesis chapter 12 that he calls to Abraham when he's Avram, calls Avram on the other side of the Euphrates River in Ur of the Chaldees and invites him to come and Avram and his family go from Ur and they move to Haran. They don't go to the promised land. God says, come to the, come to the land, come into the land of Canaan. I, I, I'm gonna bless you there. And, and he goes, okay. And he goes a little way and stops. But ultimately he will make his way into the land. He will stop, first stop at Shechem, Genesis 12, 6, Avram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Avram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. First time God appeared to Abraham was in Shechem. This is a significant location. In addition, when Jacob returned to the land, remember Jacob fled Esau after ripping him off and he heads off and he goes to the other side of the Euphrates, seeks a wife, seeks some kids, seeks a family and and comes back with more than he bargained for, two wives and a whole bunch of kids. Comes back into the land. First time he comes back into the land and stops, he erected an altar, Genesis 33, 20, at Shechem, And he calls the altar El Elohe Yisrael, God, the God of Israel. This is before Israel is even a people, it's a person and his family. And so Joshua says, let's let's meet up at Shechem. Let's go to Shechem. And it's here that he words his final farewell. But he doesn't start with his own words. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Listen to me, the prophet 
doesn't just foretell the future. The prophet opens his mouth and God's word proceeds out. That's the prophet. Then and now, a prophet is one who opens their mouth and God's word proceeds out. You wanna know if someone has the gift of prophecy today? When they open their mouth, you're gonna hear an awful lot of this. God's word proceeds forth from the mouth of the prophet. Verse two, the prophet Joshua now begins by speaking literally the words of God with prophetic reflection. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, the river Euphrates. This is not the Jordan, this is the Euphrates. Namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So interesting. The Jewish Midrash actually goes so far as to say Abraham's, Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker and dealer in Ur of the Chaldees. So he had a little idol shop in town there and made and crafted and sold idols. And the Midrash says that Avram, his son, was his assistant. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's Jewish rabbinical teaching and that's what they have taught for a long time. But what's funny, interesting, curious is there's an old ancient legend that says one day Terah left the idol shop and went to town. And uh, Avram was still there in the shop, probably a little idol. <laughs> Sorry. Young Avram was in charge of the shop. Terah goes to town and Avram, as the legend goes, and this is kind of like an, this is kind of like a uh, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree kind of legend. You know, it sounds really good and makes kids honor George Washington, but probably didn't happen. Or maybe it did, I don't know. Avram is left in the idol shop, and as the legend goes, he took the largest idol and he set it up in the middle of the shop. And then he took all these small idols and he put them all around in a big circle around the large idol. Then he took a big hammer and proceeded to smash to bits all the little idols until they're just in pieces encircling this large idol. When his father Terah came home, he was angry and he asked Avram, why did you smash all the idols? And Avram said, the big idol with the hammer in front of it smashed all the idols. Terah, even more angry, then said, Avram, you know that idol is nothing but a statue. It can't do anything like that. And Avram said, yes, Father, I know. So why do we sell them to the people for gods? It's a cool story. Probably didn't happen. But the true story is, and you need to understand, Avram did grow up a pagan in a pagan land. He was an idol worshiper. In Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, Ur of the Chaldees was the center of civilization when Abraham, when Avram grew up. Center of civilization. Ur of the Chaldees, the city itself, we know historically, archaeologically, had more than 300,000 people dwelling in it. It was a big city. It was an intelligent city, a highly advanced society. They were learned in mathematics and astronomy. It boasted a great library. You know, we, we, we so easily think when we look back to ancient times, to old history, that these people just didn't really kind of have it all together as we do. What, because we have social media, we think we're smarter? I think older cultures would look at our social media today and go, what idiots. <laughs> they were very advanced in Ur of the Chaldees educated people, erudite people, and they were nature, nature worshipers. 
They were into animism. They were into spiritualism and polytheistic idolatry. And the more I read about Ur of the Chaldees yesterday and today, the more I thought, that sounds so much like America 2022. Animism, polytheism, nature worshipers. Interesting. By the way, one other thing about Ur of the Chaldees, Ur and Haran, or Haran, both had a real focus on a particular idol in all of their pluralism among the many, many idols that were worshipped in their polytheistic belief. There was one big one in Ur and in Haran, and it was an idol to the moon god. 2,610 years later, after Avram left Ur, there was another man who arose in 610 AD. His name was Muhammad, and he elevated his tribal god from among the 360 gods of the Kaaba, that's the Arab pantheon of gods, he took his tribal god and said, this, this, is, the, this is the real god, the moon god, Allah. So it's really interesting that Satan's use of idolatry down through the years, it, it's very ancient. I, I think there's a spirit behind this moon god. I think there's a spirit behind the idea of Allah, a deceitful, evil spirit that deceived and, and lured Muhammad and he bought into the whole thing and it, and it spurred an entire religion. The moon god, Allah, but understand that he was nothing more than one of 360 until Muhammad says, let's rally around our God. Well, God called Avram out of that deception, verse three. Then I took your father, Avraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave to him Ishtak. And to Ishtak I gave Yaakov and Esau. And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But to Yaakov and his sons, well, they went down to Egypt. Pause for a moment here and note that Ishmael is not mentioned because God does not consider Ishmael a son of Abraham. Back in Genesis 22, remember what he said? He said to Abram, to Abraham at the time, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. At that point, Ishmael was a grown man, had been raised in the household of Avraham, and yet God said, your only son is Ishtak, Isaac. And so he's not mentioned here at all. And God does single out, interestingly, Esau. He mentions Esau, and he says very clearly, to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. That's Esau's inheritance. You know what that means? Israel is not. The Arabic people draw their lineage to Ishmael and Esau. God gave Israel to the Jews, to the Hebrew people. It was given to them then, that has never been rescinded as we've talked about recently. Esau got his inheritance, Mount Seir, which includes Eastern Jordan and it includes down into Saudi Arabia today, but not Israel. You know why? Because the land of Israel only belonged to one person. You know who that was? It's a really easy question, but I know you're kind of scared to say the wrong thing. It's not Abraham, it belongs to God. In fact, he said in Leviticus 25, 23, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. And he says to Moses and the Jewish people, to the, to the Hebrew people, he says, you are aliens and sojourners with me. I'm gonna let you live in my land. 
Israel is God's land. He has apportioned it, given it to Israel as an inheritance, but it belongs to the Lord. Well, verse five, then I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst and afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. <laughs> That's an interesting sentence. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. And then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you but I was not willing to listen to Balaam. And so he had to bless you and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and you came to Jericho and the citizens of Jericho fought against you. The Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hivite, the Girgashite, the, or the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, seven nations. Thus, I have given them into your hand. And then I sent the hornet before you and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you but not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them and you are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Who did all of this? I did, says the Lord. I put a little highlighter to every time it says I in that chapter and it is over and over the Lord, the God of Israel, I, 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 God did this. Israel, you were along for the ride, but I did all of this for you. And verse 14, Joshua then says, now therefore, now therefore. You Bible students know when you see the word therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. Why is the therefore there for? What's it there for? Therefore, Joshua says, and that's so important, it's key right here. It's not just a transition. All of this, Joshua said, thus says the Lord, and he repeats it through all of these verses as God repeats the story to Joshua and to the people of all that he had accomplished, all that he did, and Joshua's response now is, therefore, therefore. God describes his grace, first to Abraham and to Ishtak and Yaakov and Moshe and Yehoshua, and now Yehoshua, Joshua speaks for himself and he says, therefore, and the reason I'm sitting on this word is that is a great way to decide to love God. Look at the therefore. Why should I love God? Look at what he has done. Therefore, choose to love him. Look at where he's been what he's provided, what he's accomplished, what victory he has given you in your life. And by the way, if you sit here tonight and say, I can't see any, then you need to get your head out of your martyrdom and get into the victory that Jesus has for you. I get so tired, and I mean this with all the grace and love I can muster. Okay, maybe not all, but I mean this with some grace and love. I get tired of Christians who feel defeated or act defeated when we are victors in this world. I know the world is hard. I know there are tough times and I have had my share. But when I look back over the 
history of my own life littered with all kinds of challenges that I've had to face, you know what I see? I see victory. I see where God has gotten me to this point in this moment. I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm among beloved ones. I am alive at a time where I could not have imagined being alive at a better time in history than to be at the very end and see all that's gonna come. Praise God, thank God for that. He's done all of these things, therefore, therefore, I can, I can love him because he first loved me. He proved himself to me. He did it all first. Therefore, it's very easy to choose to love God. By the way, Paul does the same thing over in Romans chapter 12. He does the exact same thing in Romans 11 and 12, actually nine through 12, that Joshua does right here in chapter 24. God illuminates and elucidates all the things that he's done, and Joshua says, therefore, Paul does that. Romans 9, 10, and 11, talking about all the blessings that he had given Israel and all he had done to and through Israel and ultimately even brings it to the point where he says, and we're grafted in, we're part of this, and all the, the gifts and the callings of God, he said, are irrevocable to Israel and to those grafted in. And then what does Paul say? Romans chapter 12, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. He doesn't say, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice so you can get the mercy of God. He says, because you have the mercy, because of the grace, because of the blessing, because he loved you first, therefore, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is all a therefore. Look at what he's done and therefore choose to love God. Choose to live a life that serves him and follows him and is sacrificial toward him because he sacrificed first. The love of God is the motivation for our devotion. He loved me. In fact, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And so Joshua says, therefore now, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Joshua, again, he is not mincing words. He just says, Choose upsides. If you're not gonna choose to follow God, pick your God. Go after your pagan idol. But don't sit there on the fence. Be decisive. You're gonna choose not to love God? Choose today to serve something. And he says, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, again, the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you've heard this before, one of the most famous verses in all of scripture. As for me and my house, some of you have this plaque on your wall at home, I think we do, one of our bathrooms somewhere, which is great. Bathroom's a great place. You go in there and you look up and go, oh, okay, I guess that's, that's what they do here. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I'm gonna come back and talk about that on Sunday because it is too rich and too full just to try and cover in one sitting tonight. But isn't this amazing? Think about this again. As for me and my house, 
says Joshua at the age of 40, we will serve the Lord. Oh, no, no. He's 110 and it's the day of his death. Today I'm going the way of all the earth. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Josh, what are you doing? All you gotta do is serve God the rest of the day and you're home free, bro. Not such a big statement now, is it? Just hang in there a few more hours and you're gonna be gone and it's fine. What's Joshua doing? He is laying in a legacy. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. His entire life now and legacy is bound first to his house. That's the greatest thing to notice here. It's not the heads of Israel who are over all of Israel who have the responsibility now to pass this along. Joshua says, my wife and my kids, my house, that's our choice. You make yours. That's what we're gonna do. And there is not a one of us here tonight who can't make the same exact decision. I don't know what the rest of the world is gonna do. I don't know what the church is gonna do. I don't even know what the Bridge Christian Fellowship is gonna do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's huge. If just this fellowship was filled with everybody saying that exact thing, we choose to serve the Lord. Think about how ignited we could be. And I'm not even saying that we're not. In fact, I assume that all of you here tonight have already made that choice, you and your house. But Joshua says, as for me and my house, he lays in a course for his sons and his daughters and his wife and their kids and their kids beyond them. And I look at that, I think, I don't think I've done that good a job. (laughs) I know Joshua. Would that I had said and would then continue to say, as for me and my house, kids, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's on us. Joshua makes no such guarantee for Israel. Yet his words are stirring. Verse 16, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, is he who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and and preserved us through all the way in which we went And among all the peoples through whose midst we passed, the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. They say cheerily and joyfully, and this has just been a great worship service. They're all excited. Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, (laughs) for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. Hey, side note, remember this word jealous is only used for God in the Bible? It is not used to describe a human being because it's not human jealousy that we're talking about. The word is kana in the Hebrew. He is a kana God. He is a jealous God. The word kana is also used in Isaiah chapter nine where he says, chapter nine, verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The kana. The jealousy of God is the zeal of God. It is the passion of God. It is God stirred up for his people, loving his people uh, just passionately and, and ferociously even. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. Wow. People said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen 
for yourselves, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, and this is amazing. Watch this verse. Joshua says, now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey, obey his voice. And it is so easy to be passionate at church. Yes, we're on. Yes, we're in. Yes, I'm choosing to love God. And tomorrow morning, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna choose to love God. And the day after tomorrow, I hope I remember. It is so easy to get excited. Yes, I'll do whatever Jesus asked me to do. Well, in a coat pocket, they're fingering a little idol. Joshua nails them. How many people do you suppose at this gathering were doing just that? Put away the idols, Joshua said, which are in your midst. He's got a whole group of people that he's trying to charge to love the Lord their God singly, singularly. And there were idols there, right there, that day, at that gathering. In the fold of a robe, in a backpack, among somebody's stuff. There. You know, as long as nobody knows. How many people here had little teraphim? Teraphim are idols that are that big. Little household idols. They have been found all over Israel in archaeological digs. Everywhere. Tiny little idols. Little household teraphim. Pocket idols about the size of a rabbit's foot. Or some fuzzy dice. Or a little totem of some kind. How many had those in the folds of their robes, in their homes? And again, it's like sitting in church and, and, and knowing, okay, I got this little sin issue going on that no one knows about, but as long as I look the part, keep it to myself, don't go forward and make a big deal out of it, it's cool. I got it. I know I'm probably gonna be back doing it again in a couple days, but you know, I'll keep it zipped up. How many people? How many of us here tonight? Got some little secret sin we're hanging on to and no one knows, but it's cool as long as I just keep a lid on it. Joshua nails them. Put away your foreign gods which are in your midst. I know you guys are hiding them. I'm not saying this to you. Joshua's saying this to the people. I know this is going on. Listen carefully here. Not only does idolatry distance a person from God, it dims our eyes to see what he's doing and it dulls our ears from being able to even hear his voice. What do you mean by that? Ezekiel chapter 14, verse four. It's a very interesting verse from the prophet. Thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. That means one of two things. It means, number one, you don't come before me and think you're getting away with hiding anything. I know what's in the fold of your robes. I know what you've got in your pocket. 
But it also means this, and this is interesting. If there is an idol in your heart and you seek the Lord, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna hear the idol and think it's God. You're gonna pray and ask for an answer to something. I just feel like leaving my, right, my wife is, is the right thing to do. Not serious, Cheryl. I've prayed about it, and I just, you know, the Lord, uh, you know, has confirmed in my heart that, that leaving her is the right thing to do. You're hearing your idol. You're not hearing God. Well, but I, I have a piece about this. You're hearing your idol. You're not hearing God. I know that God would not make me this way and give me all these feelings and expect me to be straight. You are not listening to your God. You're hearing the voice of your idol. You come before the Lord, you show up at church, you pray, and you listen, but God says all you're gonna hear is that little idol in your pocket. Remember, Jeremiah said the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's not just idle talk. <laughs> Compromise with anything that is not pleasing to God and it will dim your eyes from seeing what he's doing and it will dull your ears from hearing his voice. And there have been times in my life, so I won't even put this on you, times in my life where what I heard was what I wanted to hear and it was my idol talking, it was not Jesus. And if I wanna hear Jesus, man, put aside the idols. Let them go, get rid of them. Which is why, at the very end of the New Testament, among the last, very last books even written, the old apostle John said in 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Was idolatry a thing in the first century church? It was in the heart, and it is still a thing in the heart today among people in this culture. Verse 25 so Joshua made a covenant with his people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Note that he added to, now the book of Joshua is going to be placed alongside Torah. So he's adding this chapter, and this is part of the revelation of God ongoing at least until the end of the book of Revelation where God said, that's it. No more. Don't add to the words of this book. But up until then, God was adding on. It's so interesting, God gets to the point after Malachi where he says, okay, stop. 400 years go by of silence, no prophets, no, no word of God written until Jesus comes on the scene and then we start to get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, book of Acts, Romans, and on into the New Testament and then it stops after Revelation. Why is that? How did we get the canon of Scripture? I was thinking about that today. Man, that, that's a big discussion. So I'm not gonna go into it right now, but I'll tell you this much. We have the canon of the Old Testament. Canon, by the way, is a Greek word. Canon, which means the standard or the rule. And the canon of the Hebrew scripture, Genesis through Malachi, those books, the prophetic books and Torah and, 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 the, and the writings, all of them were so meticulously considered as to whether or not they were truly the word of God. And there were several, there's a whole bunch of, of proofs 
that are used to determine is this part of God's word as we go from Torah into the Nevi'im, the prophets, and into the Ketuvim, the writings. Are these, is this the word of God? Lots of books have been written that are historical that are not the word of God. And so they were very, very careful. The scribes writing down these things over the years of maintaining only that which they knew to be the inspired word of God. Same with the New Testament. And you can study into that. The canon of scripture is a fascinating study, but there's a reason we have what we have right here. And it's been very carefully considered. But Joshua now writes these words in the book of the law of God. And note this, verse 26, he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. And thus it shall be for a witness against you so that you do not deny your God. And then Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance. A stone was set up at Shechem. In 1926, a large stele, a stone, in Hebrew it's called a matzavah, this large matzavah, which means a sacred stone pillar, was unearthed at Shechem. You can see it there today in Israel. Maybe we'll take you there and see it this next time. You go to Shechem. It's kind of hard to get into Shechem. It's a little dangerous, but anyone who's up for it, let's do it. The stone is there. It still remains there, set up in the archaeological dig at Tel Balata, this steely stone, which... Many believe, many archaeologists, I mean, it's been dated back to the days of Joshua. Many think this is the stone. And so it's there, a, a stone of witness. This stone has heard what the Lord said. Come on, Joshua. Much less being a witness. How can a stone be a witness? Jesus rode on the donkey's foal into Jerusalem. Remember, all the disciples are praising and they're saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord and that upset the pharisees in the crowd and they said luke 19 39 teacher rebuke your disciples and jesus answered i tell you if these become silent the stones will cry out why would the stones cry out because they were witness that the king was riding into jerusalem you know what's interesting by the first day of the next week one stone did cry out one stone that remains a witness. A stone, Joshua set a large stone there under the oak. Well, this stone was not set under an oak, but it was set around the corner from another tree. A stone for a witness to the resurrection of Jesus by simply being rolled away. Stone of witness. And here Joshua says, this is a witness to all these things. We're gonna set it up. When you see this stone, you're gonna remember you Promise to love the Lord your God and to serve him only. And he dismissed the people. Part three. Three poignant requiems. Verse 29. It came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. Cheryl, that's all I want on my epitaph. Just serving the Lord, nothing else. I love that. Isn't that great? doesn't say Joshua, the commander of Israel, Joshua, the amazing real estate agent, Joshua, the prophet. It just says Joshua, the servant of the Lord. 
And in God's economy and from Jesus' perspective, there is no higher title that a person can receive than servant of the Lord. And so the servant of the Lord, Yehoshua, son of Nun, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim. Remember, Joshua was an Ephraimite. On the north of Mount Gaosh, uh, Mount Gaosh, they kind of think they know where that is, but Gaosh means quaking. So Earthquake Hill, that's where they buried Joshua. But note this, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. What a beautiful epitaph. This is the impact of of just one man's life. He wasn't a king of Judah. He wasn't a priest of Levi. He's just an Ephraimite named Yehoshua, son of Nun. And his legacy is his people's faith. That is actually written here. They serve the Lord during his days. What an influence and impact this humble servant of God had on his people. And then not only that, but their elders and heads and judges and officers, apparently they took the responsibility seriously because it says that all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, the people of Israel served the Lord. They stayed faithful. So there's a period of time here after the death of Joshua, but before we get into the mess of the judges, when they were serving the Lord under the leadership of Joshua's guys. And that's, that's such an amazing, if we could sing it, a requiem for Joshua, an epitaph to his servant-hearted life. And Joshua leaves us with this one last thing. He leaves us with the prophetic name of Yehoshua, of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for Joshua. And I am so thankful for this book because it has become for us a massive arrow pointing to Jesus about whom the scroll of the book was written. Jesus, who said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify of me. And this is, as we said Sunday, the revelation of Yehoshua. Second requiem is for a man who had long since been dead. Verse 32, now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And that's a confirmation there of Genesis 33:19, 19, where that's exactly what happened, that, that Jacob bought that land at Shechem. And now they bury the bones of Joseph there, just as Joseph had requested. By the way, Joseph's tomb is there to this day. Every now and then, it actually makes headlines. You know why? Because the Palestinians living there keep trying to destroy it. Why do they want to destroy a tomb? Because Joseph is a son of Israel. And it is not through Ishmael that God's promises come. It is through Israel. It's through Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. And that tomb right there, man, that's a stone of witness that no Palestinian wants to see. And so they keep trying to destroy it. They destroyed the cupola that was over it recently and they went in and built it back up and now it's got all kinds of guards around it. And third requiem. So now we've lost 
Yehoshua, we see the bones of Joseph buried in verse 33, and Eliezer, or Eleazar, son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gabeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Eliezer, now the second high priest, Aaron, Eliezer, and it's gonna go on to Phinehas, has now died. We end this book of Joshua like almost every book has ended. Genesis ended this way. It concludes with Jacob dying and then Joseph dies. Numbers concludes with Aaron dying. Deuteronomy, we see Moses dying. And now Joshua and Eliezer are both dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. But with that, Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty one regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says, I am their God. Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so we're gonna meet Joshua one day after we have seen our Joshua, Jesus Christ. The end of all of our rites of passage will come and we will stand living before Yehoshua HaMashiach, amen? Father, thank you for your word through Joshua the prophet. Thank you for this wonderful man, this servant who so humbly followed and obeyed. May we take his lead and may we, Father, truly get up every day choosing this day whom we will serve, choosing to love you, Father. In your most holy name we pray. Amen.